Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, uh, I think, as our listeners are quite intelligent, they will have ascertained by now that though this is Monday the 24th of July, if global warming has allowed us to get that far, uh, we're actually recording this on uh, Friday the 14th of July. So I imagine, in the meantime, Manchester United have been bought probably by Roman Abramovich. Chelsea <laughs> Chelsea have been relegated for some kind of financial breach of rules. Uh, so if there has been a big story in the last couple of days, uh, we won't be covering it because uh, Kieran is having a, a well-earned break. So we have a normal question pod for you today instead. And on Thursday, the last of our um, standing pods, if you like, we'll have our uh, our first nostalgia pod about the price of this um, Price and let's call it price in the Premier League. Then. Yes, it's about how the Premier League started, and it includes that interview with James Brown. So we're doing questions today, Kieran. I won't ask you how your holiday's going because we've ascertained you haven't started it. Although by now you're on the way back, which is all very confusing. <laughs> how's how's how, the Baroness enjoying herself? Who's looking after Finley? Uh, yeah, Finley's being looked after by uh, by Neve who is uh, uh, the daughter of my friend Lachlan, who I used to play football with. So that's another great thing about football. You, you've got a lifelong network of mates who come to the rescue. Uh, so, yes, uh, he's, he's been having a great time. Yeah. And, um, well, which part of the world are Lachlan and Neves from, I wonder? Uh, and also, <laughs> also by the, just, just in the future reference, Kieran, if, if somebody asks you how your wife and how your pet is getting on, I would always answer the wife question first. <laughs> just a little, just a little life coaching issue for you. There. Yes, this this is why I get so many Paddington Bear stares from the Baroness. Um, I am spectacularly dumb. I don't know why she still sticks with me. I genuinely don't. There's no malice in what I do, but I am just so thoughtless. Anybody that's has spent time in the company of you both, Kieran, will know that she sticks with you because she loves you very much. Uh, don't ever make a man say that to another man again. Um, Mike Terry, as, see, that's a prophecy. See, when a bloke gets worried about saying something nice to another bloke, it's always good to rely on a name like Mike Terry. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. uh, proper, proper bloke's name. Mike Terry has a question. He says, you've mentioned that Premier League and European clubs spread the cost of transfer fees over a number of years, but does this apply to lower league teams? For example, my team, Notch County, reportedly paid Gateshead £50,000 from Macaulay Longstaff. Could this have been spread over two or three years? Um, certainly from the point of view of amortisation, it would be spread over the life of the contract. But in respect of cash payments, we are now seeing uh, clubs at a variety of stages in football acknowledging that the instalment approach is, is part of the game. Uh, for a club such as Notts County, which is very well financed um, and, and the owners have been extremely beneficial, they will be still looking at big, lumpy amounts of cash going out of the club and, and trying to minimise that. So, yes, you know, s- smaller deals are still uh, involved in instalments. There will be uh, also potential top-ups. You know, it could be that um, you know, the, the, there could be additional payments uh, following Notts County getting promoted, and that will be on a specific date. And what you will find is that every contract is different. But every contract is very detailed in terms of the dates of payments, and spreading the load is uh, is, is a common feature of modern day football. You, you'd imagine, Kieran, though, for a club at the level uh, of Gateshead. Fifty thousand pounds as a lump sum is is much more useful than fourteen thousand pound a year for three years, isn't it? It is, um, and yeah, 
then you start to come up with wheels within wheels within deals. It could be that Gateshead were asking for 60,000 and Ah, Notts County said, well, we'll pay that over three years or we'll pay you 50 grand up front. And and then, then an offer's gone in, a decision has to be made by Gateshead. So a lot will depend, just as it does in all aspects of finance, as to how uh, beneficial the cash is uh, being received immediately uh, compared to spreading it over a longer period of time. And you, you have to make a decision on on that level of necessity of cash in in, uh, in an earlier point. And, and if that is the case, then somebody will get a discount. Uh, our next question, Kieran, comes from Dominic Kammerman. And it's a question I know you've discussed in your book, uh, and we discuss it in our upcoming book out on October the 12th. But it's not something I think we've ever actually talked about properly on the pod. And it's a very basic question, really, considering what we talk about. And Dominic Kammerman's question is, what do you think is the best type of ownership model, if there is one, for football clubs? And what are the financial implications when you compare different ownership structures, such as single shareholder, minority-only shareholder, and publicly listed, etc.? Now, I think I know the answer to, to your question, Kim, but I should be interested to see if, it, if it's still the same. Well, I, I will give an answer, and I will then caveat that answer. Okay. Um, if we take a look at Chelsea under Roman Abramovich, this is a classic case of single shareholder. Now, under Abramovich, Chelsea won the Champions League. They won the Premier League on numerous occasions. They won the FA Cup and, and qualified for Europe um, on a regular basis. That They broke their transfer record on numerous times. And by the time they they won the, the Champions League for the second time in, in 2021, um, at that point in time, um, Chelsea had lost more money than any other football club in the history of English football. And you can do that if, when the club is short of money, it only has to go to one person, and that um, one person effectively acts as the the Roman emperor in the Colosseum, and it's thumbs up or thumbs down, and and that gets sorted very easily. Um, so having a, you know, I've referred to this as the benevolent dictator. Yeah. Um, and if that benevolent dictator is a good decision maker and is also very benevolent, then you can get things working in the same direction. Um, If we take a look at the club I support, Brighton, we've got the same effectively there. And the owner, Tony Bloom, he's he's put in half a billion pounds. Now, in doing so, he's transformed Brighton from being a club in League One to a club which is playing in Europe in, in, in a couple of months. So again, that can be seen to work. You've got other individual owners who haven't been such great decision makers. They might have put a lot of money in, but it hasn't worked out. And then what happens either when their circumstances change, and we've been talking a lot about Scunthorpe United in in recent weeks in respect of Peter Swan. He ended up selling the club, but the club by that stage had, had dropped down into the National League and is now in the National League North and Things are quite unpleasant there. We've got one person in charge at Southend United in Ron Martin. He's making those decisions. Is he making those decisions in the best interests of Ron Martin Mm. or Southend United? I'll let other people decide that. Um, And also, if the club is losing money, you do become potentially dependent upon that person's individual circumstances. So if we take a look at Bolton Wanderers, their owner put in £175 million, then became poorly, then sadly passed away. We've spoken about Trevor Hemmings at Preston. Uh, we've got the very sad news about John Berylson yeah. at Millwall recently, again, sadly passed away. Um, and but there's always a potential hiatus. There's a, you know, if, unless there is some form of succession planning in terms of people and finances, there is a danger that the club could could go into a negative uh, position from the finances. So, so that's sort of the pros and cons of single shareholders. If you've got minority only shareholders, and, and by, by by this, what we mean is that you've got yeah, perhaps half a dozen people, and none of them have 
more than 50%. So none of them can actually say, this is what's going to take place. The benefit of that is that you've got potentially half a dozen people's wallets that can be emptied when the club needs more money. The trouble is, and you know, I'm, I'm not picking on Palace here, it's, it just so happens to be the circumstances I would, of uh, your club. I was, I was going to say exactly the same, Kieran. And yeah. I, I can tell you what the trouble is, but it's better coming from you. <laughs> right. The, who You might have three people saying, let's go forwards with this, yeah. and you've got people, you've got three people saying, well, yeah, we're, we've got reservations or we initially got involved with the club and now we've got cold feet and unless somebody makes us a huge offer, we're just going to stick around, but we're not going to stick any more money in. And it means that the progress that some of the people on the board want to achieve becomes increasingly difficult. So that's that's the downside. You know, and yeah, there is no perfect answer in, in all of these things. I and mean, You need to be sort of you know, a little bit nuanced. If you are a publicly listed company and, and uh, you know, the likes of Manchester United and Juventus and so on, what this tends to be the case is that there are many shareholders and therefore the football club is, is answerable to them. Now, a publicly listed company is where you've got uh, insurance funds and pension funds potentially investing in football clubs. They're not interested in football. They're interested in paying out insurance premiums or not paying out insurance premiums in, in the case of whenever I've had to go and deal with them, paying out pensions, and they are looking for future cash flows. Um, they're not particularly interested in putting money into the football club on a regular basis. Um, and they will be looking at some point in time for an exit route. So it can be initially beneficial, certainly when Manchester United uh, were listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, it did raise a lot of money. A bit of that was used to pay down debt. Not quite sure what happened to all of it. it, it I'm not necessarily, in my view, it wasn't necessarily particularly well uh, allocated. But it does cause complications further down the line when, again, the club might want more money and there's a fair chance the shareholders are going to say, well, you know, we've not received any dividends. The share price hasn't gone up. Why should we go and put more money into the, the coffers of the football club, especially if we know it's going to be paid to player X, Y, and Z on X hundred thousand pounds a week? We're a US pension fund. Our members wouldn't be happy with that. So pros and cons of all methods. My view on balance is benevolent dictator. I think it certainly helps if that person supports the club. So yeah, we, we've got to know people like Andy Holt at Accrington. Yeah. He's got, he's got real affection for the club. We've met Simon Hallett at Plymouth. Again, he's, he sort of transformed the club that's now up in the championship. Um, that, that I think is the best, but it comes with a risk element. From a palace point of view, Kieran, I don't want to be self-indulgent here, but it, it does seem that in terms of short-term decisions like sacking a manager, that's left up to Steve Parrish. But in terms of long-term strategy, there's just and you know, obviously in the ten days between recording this and it and people listening to it, something different may have happened. But in terms of long-term strategy, it just seems that the stasis, paralysis, however you want to describe it, there seems to be no one getting together to decide strategy. Then you've got the issue where one owner. Uh, Texter seems to be having financial issues of his own, which are clearly having an impact on the rest of the club. But in, in terms of all those methods of ownership, Kieran, apart from fan ownership, it, most system, most ownership models are, are kind of reliant on somebody with a lot of money not losing interest in the football club, aren't they? It, it is. It is. And, and I think it, you, you mentioned the fan ownership model and the merits of it is that the fans, in theory, will do all that they can to preserve the sustainability of the club. Yeah. But then Barcelona is a fan-owned club yeah, under yeah, the yeah. Socios scheme. And that has, to a certain extent, spectacularly failed because under that scheme, if you've got a fan-owned scheme, again, somebody ultimately has to be making some form of executive decision. You, you, you can't use the weight of numbers. You, you can't make decisions using an app. You've got to be realistic. Uh, I know some clubs have, have quasi-tried that. Um, so how do you get appointed to be a president? You tell people what they hear, what they want to hear. Yeah. And what they want to hear 
and what is best for the football club don't necessarily marry up. And that, I think, has been part of the problem at Barcelona. You've got two people vying to be president. One of them will say, I'm looking for a balanced budget. I'm looking to to sign players, but sometimes we'll have to sell to buy. And the other person is saying, spend, spend, spend. And and you probably probably both remember that episode of The Simpsons, where Homer Simpson became mayor for a week and he brought in, uh, you know, he brought in new dust, dustmen, dustmen <laughs> on fantastic contracts, and everything worked extremely well until the money ran out in week two. Yeah, um, and that's what happened at Barcelona. But, but what a week week one was, Okiran. What a week! What, what a week! week exactly. We'll always have week one. Um, and in answer to your question about whether Ron Martin is doing it for Ron Martin or Southend United, my vote, uh, uncontroversially, is going Ron Martin. Um, <laughs> Our next question comes from Andrew Woodman, who may or may not be Andy Woodman, uh, Gareth Southgate's best mate and ex-Palace goalkeeper. Um, I suspect this question is here because it's very germane to the next pod we are doing, which is that look back at the introduction of the Premier League. Uh, and this is almost an introduction to that introduction, if you like, because Andrew Woodman's question is, in recent years it's been demonstrated that total wage bills have been the best indicator of league position. Was this also the case in the 70s, 80s and early 90s when Liverpool and Manchester United dominated? dominated? And what were the relative wage bills at clubs like Derby County, Aston Villa and, in brackets, Cough, Nottingham Forest, when they won the league? Which makes me suspect Andy might be a Derby County fan if we have to cough before we say Nottingham Forest. (laughs) Well, um, this involved... On a Friday night, <laughs> a long trawl into Company's house. Oh, what better on a Friday night than a long trawl into Company's house, Gary? This is why I'm the most rock and roll accountant in the country. It's a fairly typical, um, it's a standard Friday night for you, Gary. It is. Yeah, this, yeah, I would have been doing it anyway, so I might as well do it for the podcast. <laughs> yes. Um, they, I, I was quite staggered at at some of the numbers. Um, oh, well. If we, if we go back to Aston Villa... Winning the European Cup in 1982, and remember those were the days when I presume you'd have done the same. We were both cheering on Aston Villa because they were an English club. Absolutely, uh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Tony Morley across to Peter With, yeah, uh, you know, knocked it in from six yards. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and that was Villa. Villa only used 15 players the entire season, I believe. That. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, the the total wage bill for Aston Villa that season was 980 no. grand. 980 grand. And in those days, uh, if you knew your small print, you could find out how much anybody earning more than 25 grand a year was earning. Aston Villa's highest paid player that season, they won the FA so they won the European Cup, was on 900 quid a week. Wow. Is, is there a way of roughly translating that to modern... Uh, I, I I'll get out my I'll, I'll get out my inflation calculator when we do the. But, it's only, the but that's only going to be nine grand a week. I, I mean, that's astonishing, Kieran. That whole wage bill is not. Yeah. I mean, it's a long time ago. Again, this is a good setup for why we're doing a pod about how Premier League has changed football. That's that's really taken me aback. That figure, Kieran. Actually, I know. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And if we we talk about the impact that TV has had. Well, last year, Aston Villa uh, will have made around about £140 million from TV money. In the year they won the European Cup, including all of the money from Match of the Day, from FA Cup, and from winning the European Cup itself, they made £180,000 compared to a hundred. And last season... They didn't qualify. They weren't in Europe. So they made 140 million pounds in the Premier League in 22-23, 180 grand, including winning the European Cup. So football has been transformed by TV. There's no doubt about that. Um, so a very it, sort of tying this into Andrew's question, what we saw was there was greater diversity in terms of clubs winning. The fact that you know, Andrew's able to, to name check Derby County, yeah. Aston Villa, uh, Leeds United, Arsenal, 
Uh, remember Everton winning it. I remember Ipswich being runners up. QPR. Uh, yeah, QPR being yeah. runners up. And the reason for that was you might have one club paying six hundred pounds a week, and you might get another twenty quid if you went elsewhere. And you go, well, you know, it, it's just not worth the aggravation. Whereas now we have the domination of the the sneaky six clubs, whatever you want to call them. Um, on average, they are making three hundred million pounds a year more than the other fourteen clubs in wow. the Premier League, and that's reflected in what they can afford to offer. So, the, think the average uh, Manchester United had the the highest wage bill in in twenty one twenty two. That worked out as around about one hundred and seventy thousand pounds a week. You've got players on on a third of that um, in in the in the lower regions or even in the mid regions of the Premier League. So if Manchester United want a player, they just say, "Oh yeah, we'll we'll double your wages," and that is is very much a driving force. That wasn't the case to the same extent. Yeah, the very fact that Nottingham Forest had been promoted and and won the the equivalent of the Premier League in their first season uh, after being promoted. Uh, you know that was uh, that was an incredible achievement, and then went on to win the European Cup the following two seasons, um, you know, and they were up against Real Madrid and Barcelona and Borussia Mönchengladbach, Blackburn back and mm. you know so on and so forth. Um, that was there was there was a far greater level playing field in football in those days, and what we have seen then, and I think this is a reflection of broader issues in society in the post-war years post-world war ii years we saw a narrowing of the gap between rich and poor and this happened in football and that narrowing has very much reversed itself um, over the course of the last 20 or so years ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. I don't want to give this figure away, Kieran, because I, I would like people to tune into the, the Nostalgia Pod, and I think it would be worthwhile doing so. But in my research for that, I found the figure that ITV had paid for broadcasting rights between the period 1988 and 1992, and it's, it's well, without giving it away, Kieran, it's, it's laughable almost. Mm. I mean, at the time... I'm sure if we'd been doing the pod at the time, our eyebrows would have been raised. But in, in modern context, you can't imagine that that's all football valued itself at. Um, so thank you, Andrew. That's a really good question. And it really has teed up nicely our next pod. And our next question comes from Ian Robertson. And Ian says, I'm a big fan of Major League Baseball and NFL. And in both those leagues, players' contracts are completely transparent and out in the open. So my question is, why on earth can't there be the same transparency in football? What are the clubs trying to hide? It's interesting, Kieran, that the football fans' default setting is that clubs must be trying to hide something financially. What is it they don't want us to know? And also, you could argue that they're perfectly within their rights to not reveal contract. And in fact, that the perverse people here is American sport for making players' contracts so completely transparent. Yes, I think there is a complete cultural yeah. gap between the USA and uh, here in Europe. Um, we're all very coy in this country about what we earn. Yeah. Um, and that's also the same in clubs themselves. You know, we both know players um, and, and ex-players, and uh, one of the things that they don't talk about is how much you want. Yeah. Uh, and <clears throat> I, I, I don't know what the other people I work with, how much they're paid. Um, but, I've, but I've never asked them. And I, and I think there's probably a pay scale on the university website. I've never bothered to look yeah. because it's, it's just never, you know, it, it doesn't the type of thing. And I'm, 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 I guess I'm very lucky. I've, I've got no interest in, in money. 
I'll be perfectly frank about that. And that might keep, seem strange, well, given okay. this shows, shows a monetary show. That, that's a little bit like Chloe Horrocks, our guest on our last interview, who works for Manchester United Football Club, and there's no interest in football whatsoever. Yeah. I, I don't, it's, it's, it, this is not being me trying to be modest or coy. I don't know what my salary is. Huh. You know, the university pays me and that's, that's fine. You know, as long as, as long as got money, as long as the money doesn't run out by the end of the month, that's fine. I, 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 I get a net, net amount. I occasionally look at, I don't know what my gross salary is. I've never looked. I don't really care. Um, and yet, Kieran, and yet you knew exactly how much FIFA didn't pay you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so that's sort of, our culture in in the USA, if if somebody earns four million dollars, they say I earn four million dollars, yeah. and the reaction of Americans are good on you, you know, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Whereas I think there is an element of envy towards people that earn more money here uh, in the UK. Um, as far as I'm concerned, it's it, it's a privacy issue. Yeah. Um, it, it's a contract between two parties, a, a football club and an employee. It could cause rancor within the dressing room. Um, and it says, what are clubs trying to hide? Well, you know, this is, this, this, this is not a criticism of, of you. I, I don't know what you do and I don't know what you earn. So what are you trying to hide? <laughs> you know, and, so, you know, uh, and I, I wouldn't dream of asking you, and I'm sure you're absolutely splendid at your job. It, it's why is it my business to know what a footballer earns? Because if I go to if I go to a movie, or if I go to watch a play, so yeah, we went to see uh, Operation Mincemeat yep. uh, last week. I, I don't know what those actors were paid, but it, it doesn't impact my perception of whether that was a good play or not. And, and I think football is is unusual because if you look at social media, um, the number of times you will see people saying. I've lost all love and interest in football because of how much the footballers are being paid. I, I don't feel the same when I went to see Blur on yeah. on Sunday. You know, how much Damon Albarn will pick up from that gig is, is a complete irrelevance. The show's either good or not, and the football match to me is either good or not, regardless of whether somebody's paid 30k a week or 50k a week or, or 500k a week. Yeah. Um, so I... I, I Please, I, I'm, I'm trying not to be – I don't want to go and offend you in here, but the, I don't think football clubs are trying to hide anything. It's just – it's a, it's a privacy issue, and that's how we operate, and that's how this country has operated at, at all times. I, I think, Kieran, that there are two issues, and, and the second one of which is – Ian doesn't need defending, but the, the first one is, again, I, I don't want to be self-indulgent to talk about Palace fans, but we've spoken about virtually nothing else recently. Uh, than Will Sahar, will he stay, will he go, how much he's getting at Palace, how much he will. And everyone seems absolutely 100% certain that they know exactly how much Will Sahar is being paid a week by Crystal Palace. And when I say to them, how do you know that? They go, well, it, somebody in the Athletic said it. They go, well, mm. how does somebody in the Athletic know? We, don't, we have no idea how much Will Sahar is being paid. And again, it's it, not really our business, but... I, I know where football fans come from in this, and I imagine Ian Robertson is one of them. There's this perception in the, in the same way that uh, people will sometimes criticise the BBC more than ITV, because people think, well, through the licence fee, we are paying the salary of BBC mm -hmm. presenters and performers. And many football fans still, <coughs> and I understand why, Still cling to the idea that well, actually, we we are we're paying the wages. Now, that's not true, as we know from doing this pod. But many football fans make that simple equation. Go well, hang on a second. I'm I'm paying a thousand pound a year for a season ticket, five hundred pound a year for a season ticket. Leeds fans, as we discussed in the, uh, on the last pod, could be paying forty-seven quid for a, a one match day ticket. So they're entitled to know how much of that money is going towards paying fancy down footballers who may or may not be scoring goals and earning their money's worth. I think that's what I think that's what fans want to know is are are players yep. worth the money that they're being paid, I think. And I, I don't think there's any resentment of um, players' wages from from most football fans. I think <clears throat> there's a resentment towards agents and how much they get, but I think most football fans will go, Yeah, they've got a short career. Fair enough if they, they want to maximise their their salary, that's fine. But are they worth the money that, that I'm paying for them, basically? Yep. I, I've yet to meet 
a finance director or a director of football or a manager or a scout who said, I've, I've deliberately tried to sign a crap player. Yeah. Every yeah, signing yeah, that course, is made of course, of course, is, is made in yeah, good yeah. faith. And then it's up to the club. Now, we don't know what goes on in the dressing room. Again, it's, it, it, it is an inner sanctum, and, and, and I'm a great believer in, in preserving that. Um, I, I don't know whether you saw the uh, Gary Neville interview with Delhi. I, I, um, I've not seen that. The, I've, read, I've read a lot of it. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, and it was, in, in my mind, I, I, was, I was quite defensive of the player. But now I'm completely defensive yeah. of the player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're dealing with a young man who has had a very troubled upbringing, and football has been a form of escape. And again, you and I both know people that have gone on to be professional footballers, and the one piece of peace and calm that they used to get yeah. every week was that 90 minutes on the pitch where the rest of the world couldn't touch them. And some of those players were untouchable on the pitch. You know, we, we know, you know the names of those players. Um, and therefore, it, 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 it is a strange one. Um, you know, Delhi's spectacular dip in form. It was not, well, and, you know, I'm hoping it is a dip in the sense that dips, you, you yeah, hope yeah. come out the other side. Um, that there, there are reasons behind that. And ultimately, we're talking about a young man who we all need love, we all need protection and affection. And it doesn't matter whether you're paid £10 a week or £10,000 a week. If you've not got that in your life, you cannot perform. Mm. Um, and that's why I will, I will be sort of defensive of players in terms of what they earn. Um, you, know, you and I, we both said, if we were good footballers, we'd do it for nothing. No, we wouldn't. Yeah. Because it's because then it becomes a career. Uh, and And then you're saying... Every time I every time I step on a pitch at the start of every match, I'm one tackle away from the end of my career. I'm I'm not one VAT return. Yeah, if I make a mistake on a VAT return, or if I make a mistake when I'm doing some wage analysis for a football club, if I make an error, that's not the end of my career. So it's it's a, it's a high risk sport. Um, the reason why the wages are they are the way they are is actually due to us because we're the people that are screaming at owners and managers and finance directors sign this player spend more money if you look at the reaction of uh, many liverpool fans you you look at fsg out trending on twitter and you go well what exactly have they they've done wrong and the answer appears to me they've not spent enough money well how do you know how much money is the appropriate amount to spend mm. as far as i can make out they spent yeah the thick end of 100 million pounds and then people say 100 million pounds is nothing and I think people lose because they play computer games and because the, the toxic nature of social media. I, th I think we've sort of lost a touch with with being nice and a bit of humanity. And, and this is this is certainly not, you know, none of these comments are aimed at Ian, uh, but you know, sort of, you know, sort of some of the general stuff that I've I've seen uh, in relation to them. It's it, it's a private matter between employer and employee. Um, I, I I wouldn't want to know. I wouldn't want somebody to know how much I earn um, because I don't think it's any of their business. And you know, if somebody comes out of a lecture and says, well, oh, that was a really crap lecture because Kieran Maguire earns whatever it is. I don't even know myself. <laughs> yeah. um, I, 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 would, I would actually be slightly affronted. You know, if it's crap, it's, it's because I've performed poorly. It's, it's nothing to do with what I earn. Mm. Uh, Ian, thank you for your question. We, we got um, surprisingly philosophical there, but I, it's a discussion that has to be had every now and again. It was a good question. Um, mm. And please send more in. Uh, our next question comes from Richard Cook. Uh, Richard says, we're seeing talk of the bubble starting to burst on the deals for broadcasting rights for the Premier League. Um, we are. We all, <laughs> we've been talking about that for two years, just in the same way we say, well, transfer prices, that bubble's got to burst. But Richard says, is there any impact on the amount of money FIFA and UEFA are making from the World Cup and European Championships? Are they still making as much money as they used to, or is the price they can sell that for falling? Right. Um, there, there has been regular talk of the bubble bursting, but there has never been any evidence ah. to support that. Right. What we have seen is that there was a 70% increase in Premier League domestic rights in 2014, a 70% rise 
in 2017. Now, you cannot keep doing that. You know, no, no business, you know, the, the, the likes of Sky and BT Sport, they, they can't keep pumping more money into football because eventually their subscribers will say, oh, hold on, you're putting up our subscription rates and we'll, we'll start to walk. Um, what we did see in 2020 was a plateau uh, in terms of the rights. And I suspect what we will see is an increase in the international value of rights for Premier League and a modest rise, probably backed by an increase in the number of matches being uh, broadcast uh, from from a domestic point of view. Um, But looking specifically at what Richard has asked, uh, FIFA are doing spectacularly well, one year in every four. Um, the, the the FIFA Men's World Cup has done well. They they've not made as much money, um, I think, in terms of the broadcasting deals and the marketing deals from the Women's World Cup. And I think you've got to lay that firmly at the door of Infantino. He's uh, his strategy of trying to shame broadcasters into paying more money and not being willing to sign deals has backfired because the broadcasters have just sat on their hands and eventually FIFA have come back and accepted the original offer. And now there's a sort of a big scramble at a very late, yeah, very late moment to to get the, the right amount of, of attention for the Women's World Cup. And I think it's, it's a lost opportunity. Um, but the, the 2018 World Cup, that was a significant increase. In 2014, the Qatar World Cup was was success financially in terms of the money coming in. But earlier today, and we're recording this on Friday the the 14th, um, earlier today FIFA announced uh, that they had had allocated $200 million to uh, clubs who had released their players to play in the World Cup. Um, And anybody who In the Women's World Cup, sorry, too. No, so this this is the men's world, men's world cup. cup okay. So so the world cup that took place last November. Um, so you think, well, that's 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 a lot of money. Well, yeah, perhaps perhaps FIFA is being more generous than I thought, um, or so I thought. But then I was contacted by the chief executive of a football club in this country to say, well, that's how much they've allocated. But the world cup took place eight months ago, and we've still not been paid this money. By FIFA. Oh. And we're pretty cheesed off about it because we were planning to use that money in the summer transfer market and now we're not. And, you know, and our fans are, are moaning at us. So something is, I think FIFA is good at generating money, but it's not good. And you know, I, I keep coming back to this it's, it's cost control. Um, and FIFA have allocated an awful lot of solidarity payments for want of a better word for each of their members whether they qualified for the world cup or not um that's that's you know so that's whether you're the cook islands or bhutan or germany i think you each get uh a million dollars from the last world cup and that soaks up a lot of money um and you know yeah we're and we've always said kevin that that we're not cynics cynics. um and you know some some people have said well you know Given that it's one country, one vote, hey, I'm, I'm a big fan of democracy, but nothing wrong with that. Um, that, that looks like a bribe to, to, to vote in Infantino for another uh, term of office. And, and I think that's, that's a scandalous accusation. Um, and, and he's been, he's been uh, re-elected unopposed uh, following those distributions. But the, the two things are completely independent of one another, as we know. But I don't think FIFA are particularly good at, at cost control. And yeah, the fact that we've been contacted to say, well, we ain't received the money. We, we know how much we're due to receive. Thanks very much, FIFA, for sticking up on your website. We'd quite like it if you actually paid us the money. Yeah, which we put so many caveats in that queue, and I can't remember whether we uh, had a go at Infantino or not there. Did we? <laughs> yes, we did. Yeah, but not, not in terms of not... Uh, was that We tied ourselves in knots in a previous pod with not saying bribes. So not not so, yeah. Sort it out, Gianni. That's what we're saying legally. I think we're fine with that. Aren't we? um, two more questions to go, Kieran. Both of them good. And the first one is also about broadcasting. Uh, it comes from Paul Bentley, and Paul says, "How much money do football clubs make from their YouTube channels? 
I noticed recently that Liverpool got nearly 3 million views for the highlights of the game. Would this be excluded from advertising revenue because the rights are owned by the Premier League? Right. In Liverpool are restricted in what they can do because the broadcasting rights are very much held by Sky and BT Sports and the Premier League's broadcast partners. But Liverpool do have their own YouTube channel. It's uh, I think it's got 8.5 million followers and you know, they, they regularly do get uh, you know, viewing figures into the millions. In terms of the money made, I did a bit of ferreting and you know I, I enjoy a, you a Friday it. night ferret. Oh, you love a Friday night ferret. <laughs> I do indeed. And uh, as far as YouTube is concerned, uh, YouTube tend to do quite well out of this, but the, the broadcaster, for want of a better word, uh, gets $18 per uh, 1,000 views. So um, on a, if you've got 3 million people viewing your, your broadcast, you get $54,000. Yeah, that's just over 40 grand. So you get eight, um, 18, uh, eight, sorry, how many dollars for 1,000? Eighteen dollars. I think dollars you get, you get one. It's effectively one point eight cent per view. Wow. Okay. So, you know, there there are people who are very successful YouTube influencers. Because um, I know that uh, I think it's one called Floella and something who was on YouTube. And I know that, I know they've just gone bought Lewis Lewis Dunk's house. Hey, well, not uh, Floella, for, for about. is not Floella Benjamin, is it? No, not flow other gem. Don't you? No, oh, okay. No. Um, so you know th- th- there is money to be made there, but you have to get an awful lot of. And remember, that's that's eighteen dollars per one thousand views. That's for one product that's gone up on YouTube. Now, if if you're putting out twenty or thirty of these a week, then potentially, you know, if if you've got twenty or thirty times forty grand, then you're talking a million dollars a week, um, and and then it becomes a bit more sizable. Uh, so, so there is money to be made, but you've got to persuade people to to watch. Therefore, you've got to have something which is of of qualitative value, um, and and it is a challenge, I think, for the individual TV channels of the the football clubs to to come up with innovative content. Um, yeah, there's there's only so many times you can have a manager saying he's a great lad, isn't he? Um, <laughs> before people will go and watch something else. to the end of one of our um, annual holiday broadcast recording marathons, Kieran, by which I mean <laughs> we're coming to the end of the first bottle of wine. But um, before our final question, so somebody called Floella on YouTube has bought Lewis Dunk's house. Yes. Did she mention that on YouTube, Kieran? How, otherwise, how did you know that somebody called Floella, who's not Floella Benjamin, has bought Lewis Dunk's house? Ah, oh, well, I've got, got contacts, you know. <laughs> Your mate of Foxton's. Yes. <laughs> again. Um, our last question, Kieran, comes from Paul Anderson. Um, and I'm looking forward to this one, Kieran. As Paul says, I know you like a good FFP question, and I apologise mm-hmm. if this has been asked before. Paul, there's no need to apologise. This has not been asked before, and it is indeed a good FFP question. How many times do we have to say this, Kieran? The, the amount of imagination our listeners put in to finding yes. ways around FFP that we we need to get them all together under your leadership and some kind of superhero anti-FFP avoidance team. Um, could Bet365 at Stoke City put more money into the club by organising an annual North Staffordshire Cup and making the prize for winning it £50 million? They could play at the Bet365 Stadium and invite Stoke City under-23s and then maybe two local teams, Newcastle Town and Leak Town, to play Stoke City. Port Vale would not be invited as they would pose too much of a risk than winning the thing, <laughs> which, which made me laugh a lot. The, the, the non-league team could be paid a participation fee that would make it worth their while, and then Stoke City would win it and automatically get the funding they need. Would that work? Before you answer that, Kieran, I have to say that the Stoke-Port Vale rivalry is one that always, always gets left off. When, yes. when broadcasters, documentaries, podcasters talk about 
the great rivalries. Nobody ever says Stoke Port Vale. When I worked on, they think it's all over. Of blessed memory, hosted by Stoke City fan Nick Hancock. One of the guests was Phil the Power Taylor, who was, oh. who was currently the world darts champion, and I think was for the third. So was one of the most successful sports people in the world. Uh, but was of course a Port Vale fan, and Nick Hancock wouldn't speak to him before, during, or after the show. <laughs> uh, and before and after we could cope with but not talking to one of the guests all the way through because he was a Port Vale fan which just made me laugh so much they really don't like each other though. Oh, it's, it's vicious it's, absolutely it's, it's vicious really vicious which is why it made me laugh so much when Paul says we can't invite Port Vale in case they win it but <laughs> it, again we've talked about ways around FFP Kieran and why could you not do this um, historically Paul I think you could have done this. Oh, okay. um, it was only when both the EFL and the Premier League brought into play what they refer to as the fair value panel. Oh, now, okay. the, all contracts and all transactions have to be reviewed to see whether or not they're at market rates or not. Um, we have seen clubs effectively get away with it historically. Um, ironically, Stoke City are one of these clubs because they sold, uh, they sold at a, at a very sizable profit the Bet365 stadium mm. um, to a company called Bet365. Mm. And, uh, you know, we, we've established that we're, an, and I think one of the reasons why people tune in, because this is not a cynical show. I, I, think, um, I think so far, Kieran, okay, the last three pods we've done have been the least cynical pods we've, we've ever done. And we're not, absolutely. And we're, and we're not a cynical show. No. And the fact that this deal went through four weeks before the EFL changed the rules with regards to how you classify profits from the sale of your stadium to yourself um, was a pure coincidence. Um, so, so we have seen transactions of unusual amounts, uh, of, of unusual favour. And you know, we, we've got the classic uh, Everton case where uh, Alicia Usmanoff, the former business partner of the guy that mysteriously bought the club, having sold his shares um, to Alicia Usmanoff. Uh, Alicia Usmanoff at Everton paid £35 million for an option, not a commitment, but for an mm. option to uh, have the naming rights of a stadium which did not have uh, planning permission. That's, that's just one of those amazing coincidences in life. Uh, so these type of things were reasonably common. Uh, all of the authorities have tightened up the rules. I think as far as the Premier League was concerned, it was on the back of the Newcastle United takeover in respect of the EFL. I think it was when you know, we, we've spoken that we, we both know Trevor Birch and we, we hold him in extremely high regard. Um, yeah, there, there was effectively a race to the bottom. with, And, not, and I'm not criticising the clubs because... You can blame the rules, but don't, don't, don't blame people for taking advantage of the rules. Um, Derby County, Sheffield Wednesday, Birmingham City, um, Aston Villa, Stoke City all sold their stadiums to themselves, booked a huge profit, and that reduced their FFP losses. Um, and I think the, the viewpoint was taken at the EFL was that this was making a mockery of FFP. It was also gambling with the futures of the clubs, and in the case of Birmingham had a points deduction. Reading have done it as well. They've had points deductions. Derby County have had a points deduction. Sheffield Wednesday have had a points deduction. Uh, uh, I think it's a fair case that Aston Villa may have had a points deduction had they not won the playoffs and been promoted to the Premier League. So there, uh, there is a series of rules. And three or four years ago, Paul, I'd say absolutely. And again, the cynic in me uh, notes that... Uh, I believe Newcastle have just arranged for the the Seller Cup, the, uh, their new their new sponsors from from the Middle East. Um, they're competing in that. Um, I don't know whether there's a hosting fee or a promotional fee, but it will be now monitored um, uh, because the, the Premier League is rightly or wrongly uh, applying a different set of rules to where we were five years ago. Thank you to everyone who has donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to join them and make a small monthly contribution to the pod, that would be very kind of you. And you can do so by going to patreon.com slash price of football. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. 
We'll be back on Thursday with the last of our special holiday pods, that long-awaited uh, Premier League founding nostalgia one, which we have plugged so much. We'd better make sure it's a really good pod, Kieran. <laughs> uh, uh, in the meantime, this is how much we love you, everybody. It's nearly midnight on Friday, and we are convening tomorrow morning to record that just for your delight and delification. Delification? In- <laughs> Delification? That's that's when something is like Deli Alley, yes. Um, that's, that's wine bottle number two. That is, it's, wine bottle number two has not been opened yet, Kieran. I'm a professional. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just uh, what they call the, the, the New York second, the, the amount of time between the traffic light changing and somebody behind you honking the horn, the amount of time between <laughs> us stopping recording and the second bottle being opened is of a similar duration. Uh, before that part, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Um, well, thank you, everybody, for, for sticking with us. Um, the, the number of downloads. I, th- I think we are we are somehow – somebody told me earlier today that we are in the top 0.1%. In fact, it even might be 0.01% of, of podcasts, uh, and we are really touched by that. Thank you to everybody at Patreon for the level of support. Um, we are we are in discussions. We're trying to try to improve what we can give back to you, uh, and there'll be news of that in due course. Um, there's another way of supporting the show, and, and that's to give us a review on on your app, um, and give us whatever you think we're worth in terms of stars. Uh, but by all accounts, it makes absolutely no difference what you what you say in terms of the review. And you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Nick Hancock and Phil the Power Taylor. <laughs> and I suspect that'd be quite a short show. <laughs> it's just the two of them with their backs to each other. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. I'm for the